pray before we open up the word. Father, thank you again, God, that you've given us a song to sing, that you have given us joy and rest and fruitfulness, God, in this life. Thank you, Father, for the great privilege of being able to gather with your people this morning and to hear from your word, God. I pray that you would use it, uh, Father, to give us spiritual strength this morning, God. Many of us are struggling, suffering, weak, hurting, sick, Father, and uh, we need to hear from you, Lord. So please, again, refresh us, challenge us, and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we'll be covering a whopping three verses, verses 9 through 11, and titled this message, Fullness of Joy, for you note takers, Fullness of Joy. So, beloved Pastor Rob solemnly charged me not to go over 40 minutes today, but you must decide for yourselves if I must obey man or God. (laughs) You decide what is right to do in the sight of the Lord. I must do what he calls me to do, and that's to preach the word. Just kidding. It's going to be short and sweet today, hopefully. We'll see. I got the timer going, so we'll see what happens. Um, If you've been with us these past few weeks You know, we've been in the section of John 15, again, where Jesus identifies himself as the true vine, the source of all spiritual life and strength, the one to whom we must be connected in order to really be alive, right? And he is in the midst here, don't forget, of giving comfort and hope to his disciples who are the branches. And he is still preparing them for the extreme difficulty and trial that is soon to come their way. They're about to get hit with the death of the person that they've been following for the past three years, followed by a scattering and then a lifetime of persecution and an an early and most likely painful death. So he is getting them ready, right, for all the things that are to come. And he is reassuring them That because they are branches connected to him, the vine, because they are alive in him, if they remain in him and him in them, that they will bear much fruit to God's glory. They will have their prayers answered, right? They will have assurance, and they will prove to be his disciples because God is actively working in their lives, pruning them so that they may bear more and more fruit. Now, a little side note, I am apparently becoming known, even at the ripe old age of 29 and 11 twelfths, that I like to beat a dead horse. Um, and, you know, I prefer to call it doing my job. You can use whatever vocabulary you want, but I personally don't believe that the person and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ is a dead horse. And I hope that none of you do either. I hope that you guys don't see that as beating the same horse over and over because it is a horse that we need to uh, be confronted with weekly, daily, moment by moment. He is the living remedy to all human ailment. He is the refreshment to our souls that we come here every week to receive. Amen? It's not called a service, fun fact, because we come to serve God with everything that he needs. Some of you may have been under that impression. That is not the case at all. It is the other way around. We come here to receive from him what we need, and he is glorified in our neediness for him, right? God lacks nothing. 
He's not sitting around waiting for us to get here so he can be whole. We come to him to be amongst his people, uh, to receive his mercy and his compassion and his care week by week. And so that's what we're here to do. And if going into my grave, Lord willing, my wife dies before me so she never has to be alone, but if going into my grave the complaint is raised against me that I preach too much about the grace of God in Christ Jesus, I will receive that as the highest compliment imaginable. So whoever buries me, you know, put a smiley face on my gravestone. If, uh, if that's the case, if everyone was like, man, this guy just would not shut up about grace, praise God, I'm happy to die in that place. So as we continue on in John 15, which again, let me reiterate, is very far from being a threatening passage, as many have unfortunately uh, interpreted it. Uh, Today we're going to see Jesus give his disciples his purpose for this parable that he is teaching them. And it's not to scare them. It's not to burden them. It's not to cause them to doubt. Listen to these incredible words with me, if you would, verses 9 through 11. Let's read together. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So what is the posture of Christ toward his disciples? Is he hiding around every corner ready to smash them when they slip up? No, he says he loves them and he wants fullness of joy for them. And if you are in him this morning, this is his heart toward you. If you are connected to the vine, if you are a living branch, if you have been made clean by believing his word, believing his gospel, then his desire for you also is to know his love and his joy. It's pretty cool, isn't it? And how does he offer his joy? How does he offer the fullness of our joy? He says to them, remain in my love, keep my commandments. So this right here is the source of our zeal for his commands. It's the source of our fervor for his commands. It's our drive to keep his commands. It is his love for us. Nothing else will do. There is no greater motivation to keep the commands of God than the love that Jesus has already displayed for you. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, we make it our goal to please him, right? He goes on to say his love, what? Does anyone know? It compels us. His love compels us because he died for us that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Because of what he has done, we are now compelled to live for him and not only for ourselves. And my friends, my brothers and sisters, this is where true joy is found. And again, I am not pointing my finger at anybody here. I am preaching to myself. True joy is found here in living for him, in living in his love, and is keeping his commandments. That is where we find joy. Not to earn his love or favor, but because of his love and his favor. Now, 
what we see here is that Jesus has already loved us with a love that our fallen minds are incapable of grasping, impossible to fully understand. Paul says that we need to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in order to even hope to comprehend this love. He was praying for his people that they would be able to understand the love of Christ. Ephesians 3, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You guys want to talk about a love that surpasses knowledge? Look no further than John 15, 9. Let's read it again. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. What? Am I reading this correctly? Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Did I mess it up? Does your translation say something different? Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Jesus loves his followers with the same love that the Father has for him. Now, if that line does not make you pause for a second in your reading, it absolutely should. Jesus has loved you the same way that the Father loves his own Son. So what he's saying here is that the God above all things, who is the fullness of perfection, eternal glory, who loves the Son the second person of the Trinity, from before all time with an eternal and perfect and endless and unchanging and unwavering love who could not possibly love anything more completely and unconditionally than he loves Jesus, that is the love that Jesus has shown for us, for every person in this room. He has shown that love to you, to sinners, to blasphemers, to idolaters, he has given the love of the Father. How is that even possible? I do not know. God's ways are high and lofty and lifted up. It makes no sense to me, but this is the truth of God's word. He's going to go on in John 17 to say that the Father has also loved us even as he loves the Son. So Jesus, sorry, I'm getting these twisted up now. Jesus has loved us even as the Father has loved him. And he's also going to say that the Father has loved us even as he loves the Son. So lest we should think that Jesus loves us and the Father tolerates us, right? That's, that's not the case at all. We're told that the love that exists within God's own triune being and perfection has been extended to fallen humanity through the Son. This should just crack our skulls open with, with the magnitude of what he's saying here. We could spend our entire lives considering this verse and we would never understand the fullness of it, at least not this side of eternity. Romans 5, 6, you guys know this one. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were despicable and despised and despising, hated and hating, unlovable and unloving, you go down the list, God sent his son to die for us in that state. That is the love of God that has been shown to us in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I, 
I need this. I need to hear this, not even daily, I need to hear this multiple times a day that I am in this place, that this love has been given to me because no matter how good I'm feeling on any given day and even during the day, sometimes we're like this, right? You're like, man, I am in fellowship with the living God and then something happens and you're like, he hates me, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> or whatever, you know, he's, you know, I certainly I've lost my salvation or whatever it is, or I've, I've pushed him away or I've gone too far or I've, I've fallen one too many times, whatever it is. No matter where we're feeling on any given day, we cannot fully comprehend this love when we're faced with our own sinfulness because we look in the mirror and what do we see? Well, we're pretty good at seeing our own shortcomings. That's one of the things that we do best. We're our own harshest critic. <clears throat> it, is, it is so good, this love and this good news is so good that it is difficult for the mind to grasp that we have been loved and are currently loved unconditionally. We are so accustomed to conditional, transactional, give and get, do and receive, all that stuff, that it is difficult for our human minds to comprehend the idea that we are loved no matter what. Love no matter what. With a love that is so pure and so sacrificial and so boundless, it is the same love that exists within the Trinity that God would offer up his beloved son in our place, that the son would lay down his life for us, and that the father, the son, and the spirit would love us with the same love that is shared within the three persons of the Godhead. I can't, I can't explain that to you. I wouldn't even hope to try. I, all I can do is just tell you that it's true and leave you to spend your life trying to understand this, praying that God would give you an understanding of this because this is madness to the unbelieving mind. That's what the Bible says. It is foolishness. It doesn't make any sense, right? The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And I've, I've, I've had this happen even this week. I, sometimes I have to cut loose and do a little, uh, I'll, I'll go on like some YouTube comments or something. And I know that I'm most likely wasting my time, but I just do it anyway. I don't know why. And, and someone responded to me and was like, Jesus lived the law so we wouldn't have to? That doesn't even make sense. And I go, I know, right? It doesn't, it, to the unbelieving mind, it's, it's nonsense. It's foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's everything to us, right? This is everything to us. The, the, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And this is where we want to be. We want to be right here in the fullness of God's love. We want to be right here in the knowledge of it and in the experience of it. This is quite literally what we were made for. Jesus said to his disciples, This is how I have loved you as the Father has loved me. In other words, I have loved you completely and perfectly withholding nothing. Now, remain in my love. Stay there. Don't depart from that place. Cling to that. Find your soul's rest there in my love. Abide there, right? Stay there and you will have my joy and your joy will be full. Keep my commandments. Do you see how he structures the argument? Remain in my love. Know my joy. Keep my commandments. Verse 10. Put your eyes there if you would. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love 
just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So now, don't get this part twisted up. We got to get the order right or we will make an absolute mess of this passage. Jesus is not saying that we're saved by his grace through faith and then we keep ourselves saved by keeping his commandments, right? You guys believe that, yes? Sola fide. Say it with me. Sola fide. Faith alone, right? In that sense, we are all reformed. Whether you guys are Calvinists or not, I don't care. If you believe that you are saved through faith alone, you are a product of the Reformation. Hallelujah. Faith alone. Faith alone, grace alone. That is how we are saved. The fact that we could ever keep ourselves in his love in that sense through our works is absolute foolishness. He also is not saying that he will cease to love us if and when we break his commandments, right? Otherwise, he loves none of you, right? We're all, we're all in big trouble. So that is clearly not what he's saying. That is, in fact, uh, Roman Catholic doctrine. Uh, they're called mortal sins, sins that cause a person to fall from the state of grace. That is a scary and frightening and terrifying place to be. If there's any sin that I can commit that will remove the love of God from me, God help me because Lord knows I've committed him in my heart, right? If we look at a, a brother or sister with contempt, we've already committed murder in our hearts. If we look at a, a person of the opposite or same sex with uh, lust in our hearts, then we've already committed adultery with that person. None of us is spared from any of these so-called mortal sins. We have all committed them. Jesus says that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But that's a whole other subject. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Same author again, 1 John uh, chapter 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, our favorite word, but, but, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous one stands in our place and he advocates for us to the Father. He pleads the case of our innocence when the adversary brings a charge against us. So remember, we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture in its context. And the first thing he says in our context, he says, I've told you these things, verse 11, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's our immediate context. Remember, he's already said in John 10 that he gives eternal life to his sheep and that they will never perish and that no one will snatch them out of his hand or out of the Father's hand. And he also said further back in John 6 that none that the Father gives to him will he ever lose or cast out. And he's told them here in John 15, you are already clean, right? So these guys, Judas being the obvious exception, are true branches. They are in the true vine. They are alive in him. They are most secure in his hands. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He is not threatening them with taking back his love if they don't keep his commandments. That's backwards. So what is he communicating when he says, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love? This is the joy of obedience. The joy of obedience. That's 
point of this message, the fullness of joy. <clears throat> if you want to experience the fullness of joy in Christ, if you want to experience the fullness of his love, there is no other way but keeping his word. Keeping his word. Just as he said, he kept the Father's commandments and remains in his love. You see, it's very clear as we've been making our way through John's gospel, most pointedly in John's gospel, that doing the will of the Father was Jesus' single priority on earth. He did exclusively and only what the Father wanted him to do. He came into the world, he said, to do the will of who? The Father. This is why I've come into the world, to do the Father's will, to submit himself to the Father's will. He said in John 8, he always does what is pleasing to the Father. Always. Perfectly, personally, and perpetually. The three P's of obedience. He did it always. Jesus' obedience then was fully pleasing to God the Father and thus fully pleasing to himself also, right? The two being one and the same in their mission. Fully pleasing. You remember back in John 4? I don't know how long ago that was. must have been a year ago. Uh, his disciples were telling him to get something to eat, right? He's been working hard. He's been laboring all day. They were urging him, Master, you need to eat. And what was his response? He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about, right? He's got the protein bar tucked away in the back pocket. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was his sustenance. That was his satisfaction. That was his food, so to speak, was to do the will of God. That was what sustained Jesus. That was what satisfied him. That was his purpose 100% of the time. And when it was all said and done, it was Jesus' perfect obedience that resulted in divine joy, God's joy, the joy and pleasure of the Father, the joy and pleasure of the Son. Jesus' obedience resulted in joy, and it now results in our joy Hebrews 12 tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was on a one-track mission to the cross. It was not plan B. It was not an alternate route. It was predestined before time that he would go to the cross and pay for our sins. And he knew that there was joy incomprehensible to be had in obeying and pleasing his Father. The joy of completing his work of redemption, the joy of saving and claiming a holy people for himself and for his pleasure. That was his great joy. And so he looked beyond the cross, beyond the suffering to the joy that would come as a result of completing the Father's work, of obeying the Father even to the point of death. Philippians 2, 8. And Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Obedience. Jesus came to live in perfect obedience to God's law and to his will in our place to fulfill all righteousness for us. He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Right? He was pleased in the obedience of the Son. Jesus, if anyone, truly abided in the Father's love. He never sinned. He never departed from that place of perfect fellowship with the Father. He kept his commandments, and he of all people knew the fullness of the Father's love. He knew the fullness of the joy of the Father. He knew the joy of pleasing him even at the cost of his own life. And the crazy thing is that we have been invited to partake in that same joy. We have been invited into that. The joy of living in what we were made for, enjoying God, living in communion with him, worshiping him, glorifying him, and walking in step with him. Now, we know, you all know, that we will never perfectly keep Jesus' commandments this side of heaven. We know this, but to the degree that we submit ourselves to him here and now, we will experience his joy and his love. We will experience these things in very real and very tangible ways. Again, Romans 8, nothing that we can ever do will truly separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If you are his, you are his, and you shall forever be his. But, now it's not our favorite word, but... We absolutely can make shipwreck of our lives through our choices here and now. We can have our joy extinguished. We can become distant from the fullness of his love. We can fall into a place where his love seems like it's not even there. For what separates man from God but sin, right? It separated Adam and Eve from God in the garden, and it separates all of humanity from God to this day. Now, Jesus has broken down the barrier that exists between us and God. He has made a way for us to enter his presence and not be destroyed. But there is still a very real sense in which sin causes a separation, and it definitely separates us from joy. Amen? If you want your joy to be stolen away, if you want to live in a place where God's love feels far off and clouded and interrupted or, or like it's not even there, if you want to live in a place of joyless shame, sin is absolutely the avenue for it. You hop on that highway and it is a one-way ticket to joylessness and a lack of the presence of God's love in your life. It's not that he stopped loving you, it's that the more that we give ourselves over to sin, the more that our hearts harden against him and our consciences become weak and damaged and our joy is destroyed. 
Our assurance is weakened, right? We fall into doubt. It's not that our works can ever really fully give us assurance, but when we are absolutely going sideways, those are the times that we really fall into doubt, is it not? When you look at yourself and go, man, I am just off the chain. Am I even saved? Like, what is going on here? I thought that God was working in my life to produce fruit, but I look in the mirror and all I see is a wretch. If you want to lose your assurance as quickly as possible, just give in to the desires of the flesh and it will happen quickly. We fall into doubt. We fall into self-condemnation. And all of these kinds of burdens that Jesus came and took on himself for us, we try to heap back on ourselves. We put ourselves back under a weight that we cannot carry, that we were not meant to carry. And this all happens through the, the deceitfulness of sin, right? It, it, it always promises. It always promises satisfaction, but in reality, it only steals it away. We think that by compromising, we're going to temporarily get what it is that we want, but we know that it's not true it's a dog returning to its vomit. It's just like, <laughs> you know what's going to happen when you do this, but yet there's this compulsion, and sometimes we just give into it, and what happens? Shame, regret, remorse. It's the same thing over and over and over. None of which, again, is God's doing or God changing his mind about us. When we don't perceive his love to be near, that doesn't change the fact that it is. He's ever ready to receive us. He's ever ready to dispense mercy and help in our time of need. If we would just go to him and confess and say, God, I need you, he's there. His attitude toward us does not change. These are the things that we bring upon ourselves by our own choices, sin, always brings regret. And I'm saying that as a biblical fact, and I'm saying that as a personal anecdote. Sin always brings regret. Conversely, obedience always brings joy. Does it always bring comfort? Not necessarily. Does it sometimes bring pain? Yes. Does it bring difficulty? Yes. Does it bring loss? Yes. All things that Jesus endured in his obedience. If we want to be like him, we've got to value obedience and joy over temporal pleasures. Obedience might bring difficulty, but it will always bring joy. It will always bring fruitfulness. It will bring assurance of God's love and assurance of our security in him when we are walking with him. And remember, he is the same always he changeth not today, tomorrow, the next time you fall into sin. God is not changing. He remains the same. His disposition toward us is to be fruitful and to have his joy and to know his love. That does not change. When you sin, he does not all of a sudden cease to want you to know him and his joy and his love. He is the same. He is always the same. This is what he wants for us. We must decide day by day, moment by moment, if we are going to remain there, if we're going to abide there, if we're going to sow to the Spirit and fight for obedience and joy, or if we're going to sow to the flesh and reap corruption and regret. It's as simple as that. He has set his commands before us, 
you Christians who are in this room, not as a burden. Now, the devil loves to get in there and try and convince us that his commands are burdensome. Fortunately, he has told us they're not, so we can just take his word for it, right? They're not burdensome. They're not a way to earn his love, and they're not a way to earn righteousness. What are they there for? They are the way to joy. They are the way to pleasing the one who loved us first. His commandments are good. If you are in Christ, if you have been set free from the requirement of the law for righteousness, if you have come out from under the penalty of it, if you have come out from the crushing weight of the law, if it is no longer your executioner, right, if the law is no longer fear and dread to you, then we can say, like Paul, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, right? We agree with God that his law is good. We delight in the law of God in our inner being. We have been given a new spirit that desires God, that enjoys him, that approves of his law, that agrees with his law, that says, yes, Lord, your commandments are good, and for Christians, it's not obey me or else, right? Ephesians 2.10, we're saved not by good works, but what? For good works, right? I've saved you, now walk in these good works that I've prepared for you. However, but, if you are not in Christ, then you are still under the law of God to obey its every single letter to perfection, Always, without messing up in any way, shape, or form, you are bound to keep it perfectly or suffer condemnation for the laws that you have broken. And that is just an insane place to remain. Why would you stay there? You are headed for his wrath. You are headed for destruction, and you cannot save yourself. Today, right now, you can come out from under all of that. Come out from underneath his wrath and enter the rest and the safety of Christ. Why would you wait? Don't wait another second. It's rainy out there. People want to test their brakes out in the rain. You don't know what's going to happen. Now, today, right now, you can forsake your trust in yourself and your false gods, whatever they are, and you can come to him. You can forsake your own Goodness, which is ultimately filthiness before him. We cannot stand before the holiness of God. We will be destroyed by the presence of his holiness. But Jesus did it all in our place. He lived as a man under the law and he fulfilled it perfectly. He said, I did not come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to do it. The law stands we must be perfect in order to enter God's presence. Fortunately, Jesus finished all of it, and he offers it as a free gift. He lived perfectly. He died the shameful criminal's death that we have all earned for ourselves, and he rose victorious over death. And he is offering salvation as a free gift to you. No matter who you are, no matter what ethnic background you are, no matter what you've done, it doesn't matter. I'm pretty sure everyone in this room can look in the mirror and go, I'm pretty sure I'm the chief of sinners. We all want to compete and go, no, I'm pretty sure it's me. You know, I got the belt. I'm the sin champ. Well, 
it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is no sin that will not be forgiven if you will just come and confess and turn to him. Turn from running headlong into destruction and trust in him and you will be saved and you will know his love and you will know his joy. This is all offered to you as a free gift. Come and receive it. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. John echoes, again, the very same theme in 1 John, even giving the same purpose for writing that letter that Jesus gives here. I read this for you earlier. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then he goes on to say, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I'm writing so that you won't fall into sin and so that you will have joy. And we will have joy because we want joy for you, right? I want joy for you. I hope you want joy for me. Where are we going to find that? We're going to find that in obedience. And what is plainly clear here is that sin is the, the antithesis. It's the opposite of joy. Sin is fulfilling the desire of the evil one. And what is his MO? What is his thing? Steal, kill, destroy. Steal joy, kill joy, destroy joy, right? That's all that he does. That's all that he's about. He is literally the thief of joy. He's Mr. Steal Your Joy. For those of you that have listened to contemporary music, Mr. Steal Your Joy, that is Satan. That is his goal. That's his, his purpose for existing is to trip you up, to get you to fall into a place of sin and condemnation and to live a joyless, fruitless life. That's exactly what he wants. And the crazy thing is, is that we let him do it. That's the part that boggles our minds. We look back and we go, I already know this. I know what he's trying to do. And yet, for some reason, we still give in to it and we go, he, he stole my joy. It's like, yeah, we, yes, that's what he does. As a Christian, your obedience does not keep you in Christ, but it does keep you in his joy. Does anybody in here want joy? Amen. He says that my joy may be in you. His joy was grounded in obedience to the Father. That is where he found his satisfaction. And so all who follow in his example will also share in that joy. The closer we walk with him, the more we will have it, despite any of the circumstances that are going around, despite trial, despite tribulation, despite suffering, you will have joy in obeying him, the same joy of obedience that satisfied our Savior. Amen? Just kidding. All right. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, thank you, God, that you would not only show mercy to a fallen world, but that you would offer joy to creatures that have scorned your name and uh, turned against you and rebelled against your law and hated you and your goodness. God, we thank you that you have done such a glorious and transformative work in our lives and in our midst. We thank you that you are making us fruitful by your spirit, that you are calling us into a place of obedience and close fellowship with you, Lord. And I just pray for all of us in this room, including myself, that you would give us a fresh zeal for your commands, Lord 
that we would love you and love one another and fulfill the law of Christ. We can't do this, God, in our own strength, nor can we ever do it perfectly, Lord, but thank you that you have given us the strength to seek after you, to live for you, and no longer for ourselves, God. So please, Lord, give us strength. Give us understanding, God, that the devil is simply out to rob us of our joy. Help us to resist him, that he might flee from us, and that we would experience the fullness of your love in a place of obedience and sacrifice. God, I pray for the joy of every saint in this room. God, and I pray, Father, that if there are any in here who are still resisting you, Father, that they would turn today and that they would see the glory of Christ and that he would be uh, their all, that he would be their Savior, their Lord, their joy, and their fullness. So we praise you, God. We thank you. We ask that you would give us grace as we go out from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.